0: The last couple of podcast episodes have been about nuclear books and nuclear pop music. We've been dwelling in lovely, genteel culture. But this week, we're abandoning such high pursuits and going back into the archives, getting our hands dusty and grimy with old papers from the 1960s, so that I can tell you the story of an angry dispute which broke out between the BBC and members of Britain's Civil Defence Corps. This is the Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDill. Before we start, let's look at who the Civil Defence Corps were, they were a British organisation of volunteers who were trained to respond to a nuclear attack. If the bomb dropped, those at or near Ground Zero would be beyond help. But, the thinking went, those who had survived would need assistance. They'd need to be rescued from the rubble, or helped to evacuate, or shepherded into rescue centres for emergency food, water, blankets, first aid... The Civil Defence Corps could do all that. They could also help set up communications in local areas. There were lots of different branches of the Civil Defence Corps. Rescue, welfare, first aid, etc. But they all worked together with the aim of responding and helping their local community if Britain found itself under attack. They were formed in 1949. That was a few years, of course, after the war had ended and most of Britain's Second World War civil defences were beginning to be dismantled, but by 1949 we of course realised that we now had a threat emerging from the Soviet Union, and it was best to perhaps pull some of those threads back together. So the Civil Defence Corps was formed, and a lot of the volunteers who'd served in the war signed up again. And why not? Civil defence in the war had worked brilliantly, so it was natural if a bit naive, to assume it would work equally well in a future war. But in any such future war, the Civil Defence Corps, of course, wouldn't be responding to conventional bombs as they did in the Blitz. If war came again, it would be atomic bombs and then hydrogen bombs, both of which shrink the Blitz into near insignificance. There can be no defence against the hydrogen bomb. Arguably, there's no defence against the atomic bomb. The NHS couldn't cope with even one atomic bomb. That was a report from the BMA which said that. They'd assessed the damage that one, just one, atomic bomb would do to Britain. And they'd said the entire NHS couldn't cope with that. So if it couldn't cope with one atomic bomb, how could it cope with an atomic war? And if it couldn't cope with an atomic war, how could it cope with a thermonuclear war? A hydrogen bomb war? So, the thinking is, there can be no defence against it. And yet, the Civil Defence Corps, well-meaning, courageous, decent people, of course, who had done such good work in the Second World War, were frequently mocked and ridiculed for thinking that they could still do some good in this nuclear age. They were often portrayed as Silly folk living out their glory days of the war, when they were heroes astride a ladder with a jaunty tin hat rescuing ladies and babies from burning houses. That kind of work, which was once so valuable and so useful, was now redundant, thanks to the nuclear age. And so, the Civil Defence Corps was disbanded in 1968. There's a debate to be had about whether that was done because of lack of money, lack of interest from most of the population, or the cold hard realisation that there's not much they can do against the hydrogen bomb. But I'm not going to go into too much detail in this episode about the Civil Defence Corps as it is so huge, so important in the history of how Britain prepared for nuclear war that it merits an episode, or even a few episodes to itself. For this episode, I'm just going to look at a 1960 episode of the current affairs series, Panorama. This investigated the Civil Defence Corps and asked how useful they were. And it created a very, very hurt and angry backlash from those civil defence workers who felt insulted and slighted by it. So we'll look at what the programme said, we'll look at the hurt and anger it unleashed and ask whether it was justified. Let's begin with what the programme actually said. I don't have access to the show, but I do have written transcripts which I found in the National Archives. This episode, as I said, was broadcast in October 1960. And for those who don't know, Panorama is a famous, long-running and very well-respected BBC Current Affairs series, with each episode devoted to one single issue. The most famous episode in terms of nuclear war is the 1981 episode called If the Bomb Drops, presented by Jeremy Paxman. That's on YouTube, and I highly recommend it to you. But this episode was from 1960, when the BBC was still in black and white, and things were all far more deferential. I doubt the panorama team from 1960 would have been as daring as Paxman's, who very bravely broadcast clips from the previously secret Protect and Survive films, with Paxman delivering the terrifying warning that these films will not be shown again until nuclear war is imminent. That always terrified me, the fact that he said until, not unless, until nuclear war is imminent. But let's not get distracted by Paxman, even though he is a real hero of mine. The BBC of the 60s, as I say, was a far more differential place. Yes, in that decade, they would start to be very bold in comedy and satire, but not in news and current affairs. A perfect example of that is the scandal over The War Game, a nuclear war film which the BBC commissioned and then banned, supposedly under pressure from the Home Office. I directed to my episode called The War Game and remind British listeners that the film is currently free to watch on BBC iPlayer. So this episode of Panorama looked at the Civil Defence Corps and asked what practical use they'd be in a nuclear war. And it reminded us that only a tiny fraction of the population were involved in civil defence work. It asked why people didn't take the organisation more seriously. And they did this by visiting the Midlands town of Stanmouth and asking locals and local civil defence workers what they thought. Jim Mossman was the reporter. He takes us around the civil defence stores in Stanmouth, where their supplies and training kit were kept. And yes, it all seems like the same old stuff they used in the Blitz. This was 1960, let's remember. The war had only ended 15 years before, so it probably was often the same stuff. They had picks and hammers and emergency cooking equipment. So, nothing particularly modern. Nothing which said, we have left the Second World War and are now equipped to deal with the thermonuclear age. A lot of the equipment, a lot of the training, and yes, a lot of the people were the same as those who'd worked, and worked brilliantly, of course, throughout the Blitz. So, Mossman spoke to Colonel Marshall, who was in charge of civil defence in the area, and he asked, is this it? Is this what you'd be responding to nuclear war with? These picks and hammers and pots? The colonel assured him there'd be extra kit provided in nuclear war. Ah, but how long would it take to get here? Mossman asked. I think it depends very much on the sort of warning one's likely to get, said the colonel. One plans on something like four to six days of warning of the outbreak of hostilities. And during that time stores would come to us Now, we all know that's probably nonsense Even if Britain had the luxury of a six days warning can we assume that we'd be so well organised and so abundantly supplied that appropriate equipment would be dispatched to all the towns and cities in Britain to all those warehouses and storerooms for every local civil defence office? I don't think so And perhaps Mossman wasn't convinced either, as he went on to ask the colonel how many people he'd need in one of his civil defence squads. Something of the order, perhaps, of a thousand, he said. How many have you got today? asked Mossman. Active? About a hundred. Okay. And Mossman asks how many air raid warden posts they would need in town. Twenty-four. And how many are currently in existence? "'One,' said the colonel. "'So, not enough people, not enough equipment, "'not enough air raid warden posts, plenty of picks and pots. "'Now, let me be clear here, I'm not mocking or questioning "'the commitment of the Civil Defence Corps, the people that he did have. "'I have no doubt they would have done everything in their power "'to help people, just as they did in the Blitz. "'It's not their fault that they were no longer facing conventional bombs.' They were now facing bombs which were apocalyptic. Mossman knows this, and so he presses the colonel, presses and presses him, to say what practical help his little band of followers with their picks and pots could offer. What would he do if the bomb dropped? The colonel says, we can do a lot under those circumstances. We would be in a position to give help to people who were nearer the bomb and who would really need help. What would you do? What would you do? What would be the first moves that you would make as a body of a hundred people? Assuming that mobilisation of the Corps had taken place, we would hope that our number would be very much enhanced for a star. But what would you do? And our hundred would be used as leaders. They are all being trained as leaders now, the nucleus of the Corps in Staffordshire. Colonel Marshall, what exactly would you do? At this moment, little or nothing... Mainly because volunteers are all at their places of work, or at their homes. But given due warning, two or three days, when we could get them together in their places of duty, they and others who would undoubtedly come to help us, we could do a lot. So the plan you're working on at the moment is based on the assumption that the bomb won't just fall out of the blue? That's true. And again, let's not be too harsh on the Colonel. As you'll know if you listen to other episodes in this podcast, all plans to survive nuclear war, all of them, rely upon having days, weeks, or even months of warning. There is no plan in existence which says, if we have a four-minute warning, here's what we'll do. That's pointless, of course, utterly laughable. Instead, plans always assume that you have days, weeks, or even months of warning And the thinking behind that is that you wouldn't just have a bomb drop out of the blue. You would have instead weeks or even months of growing international tension. And whilst that tension unfolded, all our civil servants would be working behind the scenes quietly to enact all of these plans. So either they would be faced with weeks and weeks of international tension or even weeks, months of a conventional war which would eventually escalate into a nuclear war. So we can't blame the colonel here for saying, don't worry, we'd have lots of notice, lots of notice to get all the supplies in order, lots of notice to gather more volunteers, lots of notice to get everything in hand, get everyone in place. We can't blame him for saying that when everyone in Whitehall was saying, or at least pretending, the same thing. No one was planning for a four-minute warning. In what I assume was one of the more contentious scenes of the episode, Mossman interviewed some civil defence volunteers, and whether deliberately or not, they do—they are portrayed as slightly eccentric, slightly odd, although in a charming way. One of them says, with great gusto, ''Oh yes, we could do a great lot about it.'' If it fell now, say, the time it is now, in five minutes' time... From the chaps we've got here, we could have a rescue section on the road in five minutes. Mossman says, do you find that people that aren't in it think you're a bit funny? Well, some of them think we're crazy. Why do you think that, do you think? Well, I don't know. I think it's wasting our time and wasting the people's money, but I don't think so. Mossman ends with the sentence, a hundred people in Stafford are in civil defence, but 45,000 or not. So our civil defence workers are being portrayed as either hearty and optimistic or naive or just plain odd and eccentric. But what did the ordinary members of the public think about this? Why were they not all rushing to join up? Did they think it was hopeless? Did you think it was silly there wasn't going to be a nuclear war? Were they just too damn busy? Mossman asks some ordinary people, How much do you worry about the possibility of a nuclear war? I don't, says a female. Why not? Well, I just don't think about it at all. Do you have any ideas about the civil defence? No. No. You don't care? No. What about you? he asks another woman. I don't really think it would ever happen. I don't think anybody dare start a nuclear war because of the results. What do you think of the people that join the civil defence in preparation for one? Well, if they like that, that's okay. What do you think of the people who join the civil defence? he asks again. I think it's a good idea up to a point. I don't know whether it's very realistic in the case of a hydrogen bomb, but in ordinary civil disasters, I think they probably learn a lot. Mossman asks, Do you think that if an H-bomb did fall near Stafford, say, 20 miles away, the civil defence could do anything useful? No, I don't think they could. Why not? I don't know. I think it would be impossible myself. Do you worry about the idea of nuclear war, he asks someone else? Not in the least. Why not? Uh, It might be worth pointing out that the person responding to him here is just called Voice, whereas the previous two people have been called Female Voice, so we can assume this person he's speaking to now is a man. Well, it's an ill wind. Something has to happen. The whole world has been overpopulated. Mossman asked the supposed male voice. You think that a nuclear war would be a way of getting rid of surplus people? It's nature's way, I think If a hydrogen bomb fell 20 miles away from Stafford What do you think the civil defence could do much about it? A waste of time Absolute waste of time Another person says Yes, I think it would be a good thing Especially if the people were instructed how to cook How to cook, says Mossman Under such conditions Such as we did in the last war When the bombs were on Cooked in the oil and water Very good thing you can't get any other sort of fuel. Use old sump oil and a few experts teach you them how to do that sort of cooking. But if you cooked in old sump oil, says Mossman, do you think that would help in a nuclear war, do you? Oh yes, because this, they can use old tin cans, say, and they cook you very excellent food using old bins. Dust bins and things. There's plenty of old tins that get bombed about, you know. He asks others why they haven't uh, joined the civil defence. Have you seen the recruiting posters, he asks. Oh yes, I've seen those, yes. Just never bothered. Other people give him their reasons for not joining up. Someone says, because of ill health. Another says, I've got a lot of other commitments, don't get much chance. Another says, well, at the moment, I've only just been released from the forces. As yet, I'm not in anything. Only just civilianised. Another woman says, we don't have time, really. When you're a housewife, you know, you've got enough. But quite a lot of housewives join, says Mossman. Yes, they do, but that's all right if there's no family. If they're on their own and there's no family, and they do it for a pastime. Another female voice interrupts. Look, I've got to get my ten past twelve bus. Yes, you see, says the other woman, almost a vindication. We women are busy. This is the sixties. We are busy running homes, running families, looking after the menfolk. We don't have time to potter around with picks and shovels and hammers. So we see a huge range of reasons given to Mossman as to why people don't join up. Sheer indifference. Uh, People are too busy, they've got enough on their plates. Some people, given that we're only in the 1960s here, still have fresh memories of the war and they think, I don't want to get back involved in that type of thing. So plenty of reasons given as to why 45,000 people in that region haven't joined up and only 100 had. So the episode had not been too kind to the Civil Defence Corps implying their equipment is feeble or outdated they don't have enough manpower and very few people are interested in joining. People are more interested it seems in catching the 10 past 12 bus than discussing civil defence. The conclusion of the show is also quite stinging for the Civil Defence Corps. Mossman says, and I agree, there is no defence against the hydrogen bomb. And he suggests it may be better if the Corps changed their name, dropping the word defence completely, and perhaps calling themselves the Civil Emergency Corps. Quote, That would address the fact that there really is no defence against an H-bomb as such, but that it's possible, maybe, to do some mopping up afterwards. Oh, that must have stung the civil defence workers with their skills, which are so valuable, so useful during the war reduced to mopping up. Mossman ends with saying the Civil Defence Corps are not up to the job and that few people take them seriously. So what did Civil Defence volunteers think of the show when it was broadcast? I'm sure you can guess. The organisation's public relations officer wrote to the Director of News and Current Affairs at the BBC and spoke of the excruciating pain the broadcast had caused them and they included extracts of letters of complaint they'd received and asked that they be shown to the Panorama producers. Let's take a look at them and remember that you didn't need Twitter to hurl insults and anger at the BBC. Good old pen and paper has always been sufficient. The Civil Defence Training School in Yorkshire said the programme was, quote, deplorable and has led to a good deal of adverse comment at this school and in this area. He goes on to say, Major Hamer from Headquarters Northern Command told me he had seen the programme and had been astonished that it had been broadcast. They went on to say it will be difficult for them to educate people and attract new volunteers if they're being publicly ridiculed in this way. And they end by saying, quote, some members of the staff were of the opinion that the BBC were trying to sabotage our efforts. Now I think there's some perverse comfort to be taken there. Um, The BBC is always being accused of propaganda by someone or someone else. On Twitter there are people who accuse it of supporting the Tories and there are people who accuse it of supporting Labour. People who accuse it of supporting Brexit, others who say they're supporting Remain. There's always someone accusing it of taking sides and so it's nice to see that this has been going on for a long time. The poor old BBC has always been getting it. Now here's a letter from a member of the Devon Civil Defence Corps. I write to register a strong protest against the disgraceful BBC television programme in Panorama on Monday night. The whole tone was sneering, defeatist and calculated to discourage recruiting. They go on to argue that there should be another Panorama programme, this time arranged by the highest civil defence authorities to undo the harm. And here is a letter from the Acting Regional Director of Civil Defence for the South West region. There certainly seems to be a lot of anger from the South West of England. He said, um, I am very much afraid that the programme has done a tremendous amount of harm, particularly amongst the more thinking people, who have probably got the impression that they wouldn't want to belong to a ragtag and bobtail organisation such as Civil Defence if what was shown in the BBC was a typical example of how civil defence was run. And Lady Reading, who was the leader of the Women's Royal Voluntary Service, I've spoken about them in a previous episode called Dangerous Ladies, and I've got a lot more to say about them in future episodes. She wrote it, and, and of course the Women's Royal Voluntary Service worked in partnership with the Civil Defence Corps, they were mainly in charge of the welfare section. She said that as she travelled across the country, she was attacked. Now, I assume that means verbally, not physically. And she wrote, I really am very worried indeed, because I have had a frightful battle to get people working hard enough. But this sort of thing is going to make it impossible for us to go forward. As I told you, this letter was aimed at the Home Office, as I told you last time I saw you, the work in connection with civil defence is extremely hard. And it is only by a mighty effort that one keeps the spirit of the members of the Corps at anything like the right level at all. But this thing, which is deemed to have been authorised, if not prepared by the Home Office, has done us all endless harm. And a spokesman from the Southern region wrote, No words of mine can adequately cover the vigorous and uninhibited criticism of this programme throughout this region. And what was the BBC's response to this? Well, the Director General himself, Hugh Carlton Green, sent a letter to the town clerk of the Borough of Sutton Coldfield in response to a letter of complaint. He said, Dear Mr Holden, thank you for your letter, blah, blah, blah. I saw this item myself and I do not agree that it was in any way negative or unhelpful to civil defence. There is, unfortunately, public apathy on this matter and this was accurately shown by the presenter. What was also shown was the enthusiasm of those actively engaged in civil defence which stood out all the more strikingly against the background of apathy. My own personal reaction to the item was that it gained enormously through not being obvious propaganda for civil defence but a truthful presentation of the situation in one particular town. I should have thought that it would be more likely to help in obtaining recruits in the Civil Defence Corps than any overt appeal. Of course, that letter um, is very reasonable and is, is quite sensible. The BBC, of course, isn't there to provide propaganda for the Civil Defence. Neither is it there to provide the opposite. It's not there to deter or to ridicule. The BBC, of course, is supposed to be neutral and just present the facts. And that's what they've done, he argues in this letter. Of course civil defence workers were angry or or felt insulted, of course they were. But, as I said before, that always happens with the BBC, you can't please everyone. I think what lies at the heart of this argument, this wave of insult, is um, genuine hurt feelings. The war has such a hold over the British imagination and folk memory... That's the case now. Again, I'm sorry to mention Brexit twice. I'm not giving my opinion on Brexit, I'm just using it as an example here. The war, specifically 1940, is being mentioned a lot in discourse just now in Britain because of Brexit. Think how powerful the memory of the war must have been in 1960 when this happened. A lot of the people involved in civil defence, I assume, were actively involved in civil defence in the war or fought in the war, of course, and Britain won the war. Helped win the war, so it must have been a bit of a slap in the face to realise we've suddenly been jolted into this new world, where the skills and the courage that we displayed in 1939 to 45 are now redundant. We can be as brave as we like. We can be as hardworking. We can obey all the all the rules. We can submit ourselves to rationing and shortages and privation. We can foster as much blitz spirit as we like and it does not matter because we are in a new world and it is the nuclear world and everything we once knew and everything we once learned and everything we did and would hope to do again if called upon is useless. As I said at the beginning, the troublesome TV programme we're discussing isn't available on YouTube but I do have a partial transcript of it and I will make this available to my patrons who are signed up to the Tsar Bomba level and above. So I'll publish it on our private Facebook discussion page. But don't worry, if you're signed up but don't have a Facebook account, just let me know and I can email it to you. If you join my Patreon and contribute some cash each month to the podcast to help keep it going, there are various benefits and this is one of them. Do you see 1960s TV transcripts from my nuclear archive. If you want to join, then please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Hobo. Or if you want to make a one-off donation to the podcast, you can do that through PayPal. Just go to paypal.me forward slash Hobo. All those donations of course uh, keep the podcast going, allow me to um, keep working on this, keep giving it my time. And I'm very grateful to every single person who contributes. But before I go, let me give a special thank you to the following patrons. Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett Brick Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner Everybody, Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker, Dan Breen Gary Watson, Arika Lucy Stegerwald, Ben Taylor Jonathan Abilans, Simon Robinson, Heather Parker Peter Mars, Craig Bushman John Haynes, Tom Stickland Yannick, Sam Marco Dave Marks, Alan Christie Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw Damian Ryan Peter Lee Andre Russell Julie Rose Jonathan Fozard, Emma Nystrom Ben Grabham Ed Freshwater Rosie Jamison Andrew Key Ian Elkin Lorraine Gluick Eamon Coyle Sarah Brassington Nick Packham Tara Moore Simon Reid Lynette Walsh Christopher Creva Richard Lewis Adam Spink Ian McCulloch Linda Wilnough, Kevin Butcher Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Gwynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan and Gordon McNair. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back next Sunday with another episode.